Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Ben Ibsen, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you for having me, Paul. All right, I guess we should mention that you and I connected through Mark Jenkins. So how do you know Mark? So Mark is the U.S. emissary for Yad Vashem. And uh, it's funny, I got to know Mark through my granddad, um, Jay Ibsen, founder of the Virginia Holocaust Museum. And it, it, By the then, way, we're going to spend a ton of time talking about that because that's, uh, I didn't think Richmond would have enough uh, presence to even have a Holocaust museum like that. But there, there's a, a pretty rich history here in Richmond with Holocaust survivors. Yeah, actually, it's uh, we we have a, a I'd call it a, a small to medium-sized group of survivors, but a very deep history uh, with um, the Holocaust survivor community here in Richmond. We actually have the oldest Holocaust memorial in the United States in Richmond, Virginia. That's crazy. Yeah. But I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Tell me more about how you know Mark. But so uh, Mark being the emissary to Yad Vashem, he got put into my into contact with my grandfather probably 10, maybe 15 years ago. It's been a while. Um, and so they, they blossomed out a great relationship talking about the Holocaust, Judaism, Israel. Um, and, and like a lot of people in Mark's position, in my grandfather's position, um, you start studying a certain segment of history and then the, the rest of it kind of carries from there. So Mark will tell you that, you know, he never planned to be this, you know, this, you know, representative from Yad Vashem or anything like that. Um, but it's it's just led to a great relationship. Tell tell the listening audience what Yad Vashem is. So Yad Vashem is the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Israel, and uh, Yad Vashem has a has an interesting history to itself because originally when it was established, Yad Vashem was meant to uh, really um, emphasize the story of the of the partisans and the people who fought back, like outside of the general survivor community. But it was founded when the state of Israel was being founded. And it, uh, that history is pretty much tied in. Mm. And for almost 20 years, a lot of the community in Israel and around the world really wasn't talking about the Holocaust because it had, it had just happened. And a lot of the world, I don't think, really understood quite the context of it. Most people were reeling from World War II. And as, as complex of, a, of an event as World War II was still, you know, the largest major event in modern world history, um, it's hard for a lot of people to even then gain the, con- the, the grasp of what the Holocaust was with it affecting, you know, almost 7 million, 8 million Jews, 6 million being killed. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to quantify those types of numbers. Yeah. And the backdrop is war, world war on uh, arguably th- at least three continents, Asia, Europe, and, and Northern Africa. Uh, and it was impacting America as well, at least in the Atlantic Ocean uh, and some of the, the ships as they tried to move across the Atlantic. Um and so, yeah, it's it's fascinating. News back then, the good news about news back then is people were trying to verify information. They they were trying to provide factual information. The bad news is news was slow, and a lot of it was probably word of mouth. Uh, maybe not. There was news that was traveling through individuals, and it was also uh, traveling through corporations or companies. Uh, if it was traveling word of mouth through people, humans just talking to each other. That's not always reliable. It's like the telephone game when you're a little kid. So I imagine it took, I don't, I don't know, 10, 15 years before the gravity of what had actually happened to the Jewish people. Yeah, and I think, too, um, you know, it is. It's kind of crazy. You know, I'm 
31 years old. So for me, um, I experienced the internet in its infancy, grew up where we were still very much taught about not using the internet for research tools, going into books, that books were considered, you know, these credible sources. But what you found on the internet even back then was much more credible than, you know, today because the resources were different for a lot of people. And like you said, the double-edged sword of that is it's great to be able to get information fast. Yeah. How accurate it is, is, you know, is, is a tough thing. Um, but then for back then it was, you know, it was a lot of good information, but coming very slowly. And that, that telephone game of course is very difficult to follow. Um, also what a lot of people forget, you know, especially here in the U S is that majority of where the Holocaust occurred fell under the iron curtain. So there was documents like my family didn't find out the official area where family members had died until about 15 years ago. And my yeah, grandfather that's, that's was not. Yeah. That's I mean, nuts. so, so my grandfather was allowed access to those documents and certain historians who were, who were exploring them. And they were found just in a warehouse somewhere in, you know, in, in Poland or Lithuania, you know, and there's still documents that are being gone through in those countries in particular, mm. because the, 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 the Soviet Union did not, you know, did not care for anybody to really know about what had gone on the Holocaust, just like today with you know, what's going on in Ukraine. And, you know, th- there's this whole idea of fighting Nazism and the Nazis. And then in the big, bold scheme of things that helped in the outcome of World War II, but that doesn't get you down into the nitty gritty. And, and the Soviet Union style, and they, there was no concern for the Jewish people. Like my, my family went through a lot under the communists. Uh, and that's part of why they, they were trying to leave uh, as soon as possible. We're, we're going we're to dive really deep into that. Uh, we should tell people or remind some folks Stalin was the same level of evil, or he was in the same sphere of evil as as Hitler. Uh, I read some stat a long time ago uh, that said, actually, I read it about 20 years ago. 9-11 had happened a year or two earlier. And they said, yeah, it's it's tragic to lose 3,000 people in one day on 9-11. Uh, Stalin, directly and indirectly, was causing the deaths, and, and some of this is from war, combat with the Germans, but 27,000 Russians were dying every single day for over four years. Yeah. Nine times 9-11 every day for over four years. From their own government. From their, yeah. It's a, it's unbelievable. It, it's hard to fathom that level of death. And we, and we have to remember, too, that some cultures, and, and certainly uh, 70, 80 years ago, the, the value of life was different. Than yeah, it is today, and so that, that's part of uh, the dynamic there as well. But let, let's start when, when I first talked to you. You said, "Yeah, we were behind. My grandfather and my great grandfather were behind the Iron Curtain, uh, and you you went through um, what I'll describe as cultural waves of people trying to negatively impact Jews in Lithuania to include." The Lithuanian government, if I remember correctly from yep, the conversation. That's so, correct. So just tell the story from start to finish. And I'll also share with our listening audience that you are effectively an expert given your grandfather, great grandfather's stories because you learned it from them and you actually gave tours at the Richmond Holocaust Museum. So you, you are, I, I would consider you a pretty deep expert here. Yeah. So, and that, like I said, that does get into some of the, 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 the intricacies too of my background. I didn't really get to explain that in depth like I did with you before the podcast but so to give the listeners a bit of information I started giving tours when I was 12 years old my grandfather had founded the Virginia Holocaust Museum I grew up around Holocaust history the survivors in the Richmond community um, my entire life these were people who were longtime family friends they had known my family before I was ever born they knew two three generations of my family 
And a lot of them had those experiences in common. And the Jews who didn't have family members who had survived, well, most had some type of family that, that either had perished during the Holocaust or, or had survived the Holocaust. Um, so in, in many ways, there was the link there with most of the Jewish population. But in general, my family had that link with, with the, the survivor community. So when I got started at 12 years old, I dove into history deep and I became a tour guide at the museum. I was working there my summer breaks, my winter break. Uh, it was it was basically a job. And that was very intentional from my grandfather when he saw that I had that passion. He wanted to be sure that I learned the history and could pass it on to future generations. Um, I worked there for almost seven years, went to ODU. At ODU, I majored in history. Um, at the time, ODU actually had a couple of professors specifically trying to get Holocaust studies as a minor at the school. We never officially got a Holocaust studies minor, but I took three or four classes specifically in Holocaust history. I did some elective papers, graduate papers, but it was uh, just key timing that I happened to be going to ODU with already my passion for the Holocaust and Holocaust education at the same time that was going on. And so um, I actually led a segment in each course on Kovno's Jewish population, the, the Jews from Kovno where my family is from in Lithuania, uh, what the difference was between ghettos, concentration camps, and kind of the different types of persecution that, that the Jewish population went through. And then since finishing college, uh, I now am speaking to schools and, and engaging more with the community uh, because sadly my grandfather lost his voice two years ago. Yeah. When he lost his voice, that was something that he was still doing very much of speaking to these school groups and churches and just really trying to be sure that, that the history is not forgotten, that, that for all the people who, who perished, that their memories you know aren't that, that their suffering wasn't in vain. That, that um, history should persist so something like that never happens again. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so in my case, in my family, being from Kovno, you know, they were in Kovno, and that also lends itself to its own uh, smaller history within the Holocaust. So Lithuania, um, when they have the uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact uh, that separated Poland, split in half between the Nazis and the Soviets, mm. Lithuania and half of Poland go to the Soviet Union. Well, before that, my great grandfather, Israel Ibsen, was a lawyer prior to the prior to the Holocaust. And when he got out of law school, Lithuania had enacted its own laws, similar to the Nuremberg laws, that didn't prevent Jews from practicing law, but it said that you had to have ten years of experience. Well, a lot of the Jewish lawyers that were coming into the practice of law at the time were younger. So that basically made it so that you, you didn't have 10 years of experience. Well, and then you can't get to 10 years of experience. So Do you have to go to Western Europe to get those? Yeah. Well, no. So they were schooled in, in Lithuania. And then so you still could go to school. You just couldn't practice law. You know, it's just a weird combination of, you know, like things that happen today. You get these laws that get put on the books for whatever reason. And then, you know, nobody really thought it through. But the main their main goal was enacted. They didn't want the Jews practicing law. Yeah. Just like with the Nazis, when they originally didn't want the Jews practicing law, the Nazis were very systematic about the rights they took away from Jews. They took away the right to, to have a firearm because they knew that that was something that then they could defend themselves with. Then they took away their right to defend themselves in a court of law because they had already taken away the way to physically defend themselves if need be. So it, it really, you know, that builds on, you know, how, you know, societies remove the rights to people. And rights have been hard fought by regular everyday people over people, thousands of years. People, you know, lots of people have died. Uh, just to get to where we're at, and, and then yet we, we 
for the last 70 years, we had reached a point now, you know, for the last 70 years, we've almost been going backwards. We've gained a lot of rights for the common man, and now we're, we're taking a lot of the rights from, from the common In my opinion, that's We're just, certainly yeah. uh, trying yeah. very yeah. hard. So, uh, so, so Lithuania had been democratic for a uh, majority of my great-grandfather and great-grandmother's life. And so he had this, my great-grandfather spoke six languages fluently, was a law student, um, and knew, so he had some family in Germany and knew German, Russian, uh, Polish, Lithuanian, Yiddish, and Hebrew. So this was somebody who just was very aware of what was going on around him in the world. So he already was very cautious about what he was hearing about the Nazis in in Germany. Um, but so when this starts happening in Lithuania, what, what, what year are we talking about roughly? Oh, so uh, so in 1933, when uh, 1933, 1934, when Hitler and the Nazi yeah. Party officially comes to power, 1935 they enact Nuremberg laws. 1936 or so, Lithuania enacts similar laws. Then when they have the... So he's not able to practice law. Then his interest was uh, racing motorcycles. So he goes, well, he goes, uh, I like motorcycles. I ought to see if I can, you know, sell them. So funny enough, my great-grandmother had been a sales girl uh, at like, you know, a store before that. So she had some sales experience. So they get in with Fabrique Nationale, who everybody knows is an arms manufacturer, but back then they were producing these motorcycles. Mm. And uh, so they were a Belgian-made motorcycle. So he would travel back and forth to Belgium through Nazi Germany. He actually happened to be in Nazi Germany on the night of Kristallnacht, on the night of broken glass. Wow. And um, so tons of history just tied in with, with the family story. So he sees what happens on the night of broken glass. He, fortunately, because he was a Jew who was a citizen of another country, he was not harmed. He was told to go back up to his hotel room where he was staying. He left right after that happened. He never returned. Well, he didn't return to Western Europe until after the Holocaust when that happened. He did not leave Lithuania once he had seen the Night of Broken Glass. And tell me more about Broken Glass. What happened so, that night? Crystal Knock, the Night of Broken Glass, is the, the starting point of the Holocaust. That's where the Nazi party, they used the, the excuse that a low-level diplomat had been killed by a French uh, Jewish citizen... Uh, they used it as an excuse to attack the Jewish community. And so in two days... So that's how it all started. And that's how it all started. And many people don't realize... One, Kristallnacht's a very long word. A lot of people don't realize that means the night of broken glass. Yeah. If they know the Holocaust, they might know the term, but don't necessarily always realize the destruction. In that one night, there was $1.2 billion worth of re- damage in Reichmarks. You know, massive amount of damage to the Jewish community. Thousands of synagogues burned to the ground. Well, thousands of synagogues, businesses, homes burned to the ground. 80,000 Jewish men, women, and children are sent to the first concentration camps, Dachau and Buchenwald. And I'll make a point, there's a difference between the concentration camps and extermination camps. So extermination camps, what most people are familiar with, difference being that the whole point of the extermination camp is to kill off the population, which is what was the six major ones in Poland, Auschwitz being the main one that most people are familiar with. Dachau and Buchenwald in Germany Towards the end, that's their main purpose, too. But originally, they're meant to house the Jews and use them as a labor workforce. But so 80,000 people, two nights, your own citizens of this country. And another thing is they make up, you know, 0.3% of the German population. Most people also don't realize the Jews are not a large population in Germany. Right. But many people, I'll get into this later, but many people not being well-educated and being told propaganda have these ideas about Jews that don't exist and, and are, where anti-Semitic tropes have been around. We see them around still today. And so sadly, that fosters a lot of that hatred. But so Kristallnacht, two days of destruction across Germany. 
the Nazi party bills it back to the, when they get billed by the insurance companies, they bill it back to the Jewish community. The Jewish community pays to try and repair some of the destruction that the Nazis did. Just, you know, and these are things that we can't fathom because, I mean, you, you know, it's it's just something like that is, is almost unheard of in, in American history. You know, I mean. It we, doesn't make we, sense to Americans. Yeah, yeah. It, we'd have a massive revolt if, if, if our own government oh, had done that yeah. damage to a community. I mean, it's part of our founding too, you know, but that's, sure. you know. So my great-grandfather happened to be there while that's going on. Leaves Germany, goes back to Lithuania. So that's in 1938. So at the end of 1938, the Nazis and the Soviets make this pact that basically split Poland in half. Germany takes over the western side of Poland. They, they go through Czechoslovakia. Um, they, you know, basically him and uh, Stalin and Hitler split Europe, you know, in the middle of Poland. So Lithuania goes to... Um, goes to the Soviet Union, which used to used to be under the Russian Empire and has it has been gone back and forth between its own independent country and being under under Russian rule. And so um, for those 30 years before that happens, the end of World War One, until that pact happens, Lithuania is a democratic society. Lots of literature, lots of culture. You know, they're the meeting point of, of Eastern and Western Europe in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of love there for democracy, for freedom. Um, and, and that's something that was very ingrained in my great grandfather. So when this happens, the, the Soviet Union comes in, he burns most of his major paperwork. He burned his law degree. He burned anything that showed that they, they had any types of business ties and things like that because he didn't want to be considered part of the intelligentsia, which in the Soviet Union, anybody who was educated and was considered part of the intelligentsia would be sent off to Siberia for forced labor or they're, killed they're, off. They didn't want... They're a these, threat. They're yeah. a threat to Stalin. Yes. So... So the motorcycles are confiscated and he gets basically told that he's going to be in charge of a horse and buggy like rental place. So that's what he's doing for about a year and a half before the Nazis then break the pact with the Soviet Union. So, of course, this is when all all hell starts breaking loose. So during the time while the Soviet Union's controlling Lithuania, they start getting reports that other people are being pushed, you know, to the east out of the areas that the Nazis control. And you start loosely getting these stories of you know, that the Nazis are rounding up the Jews and, and, and you know, and they're, they're disappearing. You know, at the time, people aren't really jumping to the conclusion that they're, they're being killed. So in 1941, the end of 1940, going into 1941, when the Nazis break this pact, they come, they, they, they basically try to run across Eastern Europe to try and get to Moscow. The, you know, Hitler and the Nazis were very well studied in war history. They knew about Napoleon's fairies. They knew that every... Uh, Every major military that had tried to make a move towards Moscow has always failed because it doesn't make it through the winter. Right. Same thing that, of course, that the Ukrainians and the Russians are, are dealing with right now um, with fighting in Ukraine. So they get within 25, 30 miles of Moscow. Well, in that process, our small family, my family, is caught, caught in the middle of it um, in small little Kovno. And they all of a sudden hear across the radio that the Nazis are invading. And uh, like I said, by this point, my great-grandfather had heard a lot of stories of what, of what was going on with the Nazis. And he said, well, I don't really like the Soviets much, but they're, they're better than the Nazis. They, they might try and kill us through labor. The Nazis will try and just kill us outright. So they get into the horse and buggy and they try to flee. While they're fleeing... How old is your grandfather at this point? My grandfather is five and a half years old at this yeah. point. Yeah. And my great-grandparents were in their early 30s. Um, so yeah, my great-grandfather, that's the other amazing thing about this man who 
found the Virginia Holocaust Museum. He, you know, he got an honorary doctorate, really helped to galvanize a lot of the, the Holocaust and survivor community in the Richmond area. It was just, he was a, a, a very active person in the Jewish community. Um, also, um, served in the military for 20 years, became head of the Civil Air Patrol on the, on the whole East Coast of the U.S. Um, he's your hero. This, yeah, I mean, well, he's my hero, but it's also, he, he is a living hero this is a he's guy a legend. Who, he's yeah, a legend yeah i mean this is a guy who survives the holocaust he learns how he learns how to count counting lice on himself in a hiding place in a potato hole oh. you know i mean like you know we talk about resources today and things like that and like this is and these are stories i grew up with you know and so i was telling you a little bit previously about my father not being involved in my, my biological father not being involved in my life from the time i was six and my mom would tell me well, you can't really, come, you know, my grandfather, of course, is the, the main person who stepped into that role before my stepdad came along. And um, my grand, and my mom would constantly tell us, don't complain to him. He grew up in the Holocaust. You might think it's bad not having your dad around and stuff like that. You know, maybe not the greatest parenting advice, but it toughens you up a little bit when, you know, that's constantly the, the, the you know, not necessarily the measuring stick, but it was, you better not complain unless it's really something worth complaining about. Right. My grandfather was very compassionate. That's not to say that because he went to the Holocaust that he, you know, wasn't compassionate, but there was times where he very quickly, you know, like I didn't finish my food one time when I was younger and the man's like, are you not going to finish that? There's, I mean, there's people starving around the world. He's like, right. I starved for five years of my life. So yeah. why don't you go ahead and finish the plate of food? You know, and, and those are the types of things that they hit you at that point. You know, I was eight, nine years old. And then they hit you again when you're holding, you really understand it. Um, but so, like I said, so that's why it's amazing what he went through because his whole childhood was during the Holocaust. They emigrated to the U.S., you know. Well, how, he, how did they get out of Europe? Yeah, I, I'll get, I was going to say, so they, when they leave to the U.S., though, this guy doesn't speak any English, none of that. He fails out of English class every year going through high school, has to take in summer school. Wow. And just, but, so through his own grit. You know, he made it through all of that to do all the other things that people know him for. Well, your great great grandfather spoke six languages. One of them was not English. Yes, yeah. and then and then the English later on, which you know, sometimes we consider him to have spoken English well, and then other times, you know, people would say, "Well, it's a little rough English." But um, no, but uh, but so yeah, so very very intelligent man, and so and that's the other thing about these stories is that you know my my great grandparents are the ones who did so much, and my grandfather who went through a lot as a kid though. Uh, the main story with surviving the Holocaust is, is all about his, uh, his parents. But so when the Nazis come in uh, to Kovno, in that time when they flee, the Nazis had sent paratroopers ahead to try and cut off any people retreating towards Russia. And when that happens, everybody gets told to go back. On their way going back to Kovno, uh, they get the choice between going through a very rough road that was less traveled and the chance that the, the horse and buggy that they're in, that the horse gets injured or the, the wheel breaks off or whatever. And he's got, at that time, there was actually, my grandfather had a, a, a sister at the time who was uh, a year old. Mm. So a baby, you've got my grandfather who's five and a half, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather. Or you can go to the road that's going straight back to the city, the fastest way to go. And my great-grandfather, for whatever reason, thought, well, I'd rather come into contact with less people <laughs> you know, we'll see what happens. Let's take the rough road. The I think I would have done the same thing. And and it's kind of weird because like yeah, now I think that way too. When I think of things, sometimes it's like well, you know, it's you know he knew that there would be a lot less people and traffic on the rough road. That even though it it may be rough, that it was a safer route. Um, and and it's like I said, you know, there's so many stories where he he survives almost certain death from just gut instinct sticking with it and you know and, and the grace of god and and you know that that the miracles happen that got him through 
Um, so in that time period, they have what, what was called the Maskrat Latukas Garage. And so the Lithuanians, not the Nazis, but the Lithuanians, their neighbors, led by the local priest, took many of the Jews that were still in, in the town that they could round up and find. They took them to this place called Tukas Garage. They beat most of them almost to death. Well, Fil- why? Because they, they didn't like them. And this is part of the anti-Semitism that I, I sometimes have to remind people about. Is the Nazis get blamed for all the anti-Semitism that goes on during the Holocaust. And they, and they, the uh, they, they, own, and they own a lot it. of it. Yeah, they deserve a lot of it. But Europe as a whole, as a, as a continent, and even to this day, I mean, look at what's going on today. You know, I looked at that UN vote from yesterday, and I know that I don't know if I'm supposed to really talk modern uh, history yeah, we, we or not. We can talk about where the conversation uh, goes. But um, you look at the UN vote, and majority of the European nations are sitting here voting against Israel's right to defend itself. Right. I mean, and, and you know, and, and barring any politics and things like that, I, I don't care what anybody says. If you come and you you hurt my family or anybody around me, I'm not going to. Bad enough that happens once, I'm definitely never going to let it happen uh, yeah. again. I'm going to take and, steps uh, to make sure it never yeah. happens. Yeah, and and so, but it's ironic that the I was surprised at how quick support came out for Israel after the attack because it normally doesn't happen that way. And I kept wondering when the shoe was going to drop. So I was like, it's not going to stick. I was like, there's just, there's too much misinformation. There's too, it's amazing how many, how many UN resolutions come out about Israel and, and have throughout history. And yet we've had more people who have died in the war between Pakistan and India, who had died in the, in, you know, the, the Korean war, who had died in all these different conflicts around the world that have happened since then. The UN can't condemn Russia for invading Ukraine, a completely sovereign nation that did nothing, didn't even attack them, and yet they can condemn Israel for fighting back after yeah. mass amounts. I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling. I, um, I, I don't I don't fully understand. So, but and and I know I I get caught on these tangents, but yeah, yeah. Um, that being said, so Europe had a long history of anti-Semitism. You know, a lot of people think of it as something that happened in World War II, but it was for two thousand years the anti-Semitism existed. And sadly, it was because of, you know, in a lot of cases, the, the church was involved in it. Um, the church, you know, was trying to differentiate, differentiate itself from Judaism for a little while. And when it couldn't, there became a lot of conflict there. I think a lot of, you know, like I was saying with the German population in general, there was a lot of ignorance with a lot of people. But it was on much, you know, it was on a, a smaller local scale. You had communities that were thriving that did great, where Jews and Christians lived very peacefully together, have a wonderful yeah. history. And they had other areas that had histories with, you know, pogroms and with these these different instances that every every generation or two something would pop up, um, where there'd be some type of persecution of the Jewish the Jewish population. So in, in the case of Lithuania, there is a history there. For hundreds of years, the Jews had these pogroms, and even twenty years. Before that Latukas Garage incident happens, there's a pogrom that happens in, in Lithuania where one of the rabbis is killed. You know? Things that, once again, we we take for granted the, the protection, the freedoms that, that we have, especially in, in Western society as a whole, but especially here in the U.S. Because, I mean, that would be heartbreaking, you know, to, to me and to, to my community. Yeah, sure. You know, and, um, but so, so my family avoids that massacre simply by taking that road around the city. So they so, go so great decision yeah. number one for great grandpa. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know and 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 but the other part about that instance and they've got pictures of it at the at the Virginia Holocaust Museum and Yad Vashem actually at their uh, their Kovno um, exhibit, um, the International Red Cross was there. Mm. They took pictures of it as it was going on, and just like today, and and I, I like the Red Cross for a lot of things they've done over history. They've done some amazing things for war torn areas. But it's still, once again, it, it's odd to me that they continue to be at a lot of these 
instances and locations. And, and I get it. They're trying not to get involved, but they'll take pictures and photograph and document these things, which is absolutely needed. Yeah. But then we don't find out about it till, you know, whenever later. Yeah. And then, well, it's too late for anything to be done. But so they documented what was going on at Latuka's garage. And you can see members of the Lithuanian military, which, of course, by this point, they're defunct. The Lithuanian military had already been, you know, def- you know, taken over by the Soviets and now the Nazis. Um, so you get into a really weird area where the community didn't really know what to do. The Jewish community has now been turned on by the Lithuanian neighbors. The Nazis are coming into power, but they haven't fully established control yet. The Lithuanians have started basically looting Jewish homes and businesses mm. uh, for whatever there was because the Soviets had already come in and, and you know, Persec- the Soviets had come in and killed probably three times as many people as what the Nazis end up killing in their time in Lithuania. Yeah. Um, but so then they established the ghetto, and that's, of course, where, where the major suffering really starts. Um, in that time period when they go to establish the ghetto, that little sister of my grandfather's, Marsha, that most people don't, don't really hear much about, she dies of starvation during that, oh. during that period. So they go into the ghetto— and, um, and the ghetto's in Kovno? And the ghetto is in Kovno. There was actually kind of already, it wasn't a ghetto, but there was a part of Kovno um, that was already uh, where most of the Jewish community lived. So the wealthier Jews that were more integrated with society, uh, maybe their family members had kind of been business people for a couple of generations. Some of them lived in Kovno proper, I'll call it. Yeah. Um, in like a suburb of, Co- of Kovno, um, that's where majority of the Jewish population lived, and so that's where the ghetto was was established. Um, and the Nazis, uh, they used that to their advantage that the Lithuanians had started attacking their neighbors. They said, well, it looks, you know, this is to protect all of the Jews. We, we want to protect you, so we're, we're putting you into this place. Yeah. And now, I'll remind you, this is 1941. So the Jews in Lithuania had heard some about the ghettos in Poland, but there still wasn't the full establishment of, de- of the extermination camps. Um, so many Jews still had no idea really what the horrors were that were to come. Uh, when the Nazis come into the ghetto, they kill a bunch of animals at the local synagogue to try and make it unpure so it can't be used for, for services. That meat is then, which is non-kosher, they took pets, cats, dogs. That meat is then later on given back to the families in their rations. And so now, of course, the Jews were already starving, being punished, um, if they knew, they knew they had to choose between keeping kosher and not keeping kosher. Yeah. If they didn't know, they were fortunate they didn't know that some of that meat was there. But a majority of the community, it was well known to my family, so I would imagine that majority of the community knew that that was in some of the meat that was being fed to them. So now the rations that they're being given, um, you know, and when I talk to schools, I bring it's it's a plate. A plate's worth is what their full week's rations were per person. Mm-hmm. So average calories per day that you're supposed to get is 2,000 to 2,500 per person. They were getting about a thousand calories per week per person. Yeah, you can't you can't live no, long term. No. And my my great grandmother actually became somebody who smuggled in a good bit of food to try and help with the community and stuff um, as much as they could. But it just it once again it's just the the horrors kept growing. Of course, from there. So once they established the ghetto, they had major selections, and in the first major selection, they had about uh, twenty thousand people or so. My great grandfather, like I said before the war was a lawyer he was educated he was a businessman when they brought everybody in front of the selection a man named helmut rocca who was a sergeant was deciding basically who lived and died out of twenty thousand people of course you could never imagine somebody at the rank of sergeant being given that type of authority no and right 
And, and, and so, so the selection, as it was described to the Jewish community, was supposed to be what? It was supposed to just separate you out based on your jobs. That's how it was explained. Hey, okay. we've got to sort through who does what so we can give you, give you work to do and figure out where, where all the pieces fit. Um, and once again, the Jews did not have an idea at this point what the selection end result would be because it was unheard of that you'd go through this selection and that based on your occupation, you'd be chosen if you lived or died. Yeah. Um, Could you be of use to the Nazis? Or that's not? exactly what yeah. it was. And, and the Nazis, just like with the Soviet Union, which is the ironic part also about in American politics and history, people talk about the Nazis and the Soviets as being, you know, in communism versus socialism being like these totally different political forms of government. And I'm like, no, they both lead to an authoritarian form of government and they both lead to <clears throat> The, the only way that you can cause this type of mass destruction on your people, because if you have a small or less involved government that doesn't have so much control over their citizens' lives, yeah. you can't reach that point. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not you're, possible. Because your citizens are generally thriving. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, um, and so it's weird. Like I said, when people don't fully understand the, the history behind, you know, even the terms, the groups of people, things like that. And they have these discussions, you know, like you're way off in left field, you know, you're acting like Stalin and Hitler because they fought each other in a war were completely two different sides of, of a coin. No, they were definitely on the same side they of were, the coin. They, they were both evil. Yeah. Well, and, and they both wanted to kill off everybody they thought was different than them. They yeah. both thought that people, now the Nazis did care a lot more about ed, higher education, intelligence, what they, what they viewed to be, you know, good education than, than necessarily the Soviet Union did. But it's, once again, that was within their own their own general population. They didn't want you know they didn't want the peoples of Eastern Europe to be educated. They didn't care if Polish people were educated, if, right. if Hungarians were educated, you know. And they, you know, so it didn't matter to them. But so when my grandfather went up, he was representing our whole family and some neighbors because as the selection is going on, people are kind of jumping from groups to groups, and nobody really understands what's going on. You see these groups set before this guy, and he asks you, "Vasis dein Beruf der Pluchta Jude," which is, "What is your profession, damn Jew?" Mm. And they just see people going left and right. You don't, you don't have an idea. Well, my great-grandfather, until his dying day, didn't know why. But when he gets asked about his profession, instead of saying that he's a lawyer, that he's a businessman, anything like that, where a lot of the people they knew were telling their professions, he said, I'm a car mechanic. My great-grandfather could work on things that was handy enough. But as my grandfather would say, he couldn't drive a nail straight. <laughs> so... It was mind-blowing that he said he's a mechanic, but he was smart enough. You know, it's I, I do want to say, you know, God made it all happen, but he was smart enough to, you know, to get by the, you know, what what he could, and God did the rest for sure. But so he he noticed that a lot of the blue-collar people were being pointed one direction, white collar being pointed another direction, and he didn't know what that meant, but he just he felt odd about it. So he said that in eighty-something people or so survived because of that decision that day. But only eighty. Only eighty-something. Well, sorry. 80-something in my family's group. Okay. Now, this is where, getting to the total numbers from the selection, a little over 9,000 men, women, and children are killed that first day. And out of that, two-thirds were women and children. Mm. Most of them being shot in the head from the Nazis. They were brought to the, the ninth and the seventh forts, which were old World War One forts, on the outskirts of Kovno. And that's where majority of the killing in the Kovno area is at. Um, is out there. And so these people are killed one by one by Nazis. Women and children, um, many of them burned too, but the burning, typically they were trying to, to, to make sure they were dead and then burn them. There are a few people who survived that selection who had been who had gone to the Ninth Fort and dug their way through bodies, got got back to Kovno, and, and, and a lot of people didn't believe, you know, when they said what had happened until a month or two later 
when none of the family members are returning, then it starts to sink in what had happened. Yeah. So it's um, like I said, it's just it's it's we know so much today about what happened then, and, and we kind of gear ourselves to think in that way in worst case scenarios. But back then, they would have never conceived. You know, it's one thing to have a pogrom and you have twenty, thirty, you know, a hundred people get killed from your community. They, typically they were trying to be pushed out of a community as opposed to being killed off yeah. from a community. Yeah. Um, so your uh, great grandfather goes to the blue collar route. And so he is effectively working for the Nazis at this point. Well, yes. And so uh, they also had another selection where they wanted educated young men to come. And, uh, and same thing as friends came to him and said, Hey, they say they're going to pay us a lot better. You're working at the, uh, airfield. Cause he basically had them basically tearing up the airfield and rebuilding it as it was being bombed. Mm. Um, and so that was very tough work. Of course, you're constantly out in the sun when it's summertime, when it's wintertime, it's negative 20 degrees. Um, so very hard work, but my great grandfather preferred that over anything else really, because it did, it, it, the rations were a little better for that type of work, but he also knew what type of work it was. He knew it. It kind of kept him kind of near where he knew he'd leave and come home pretty much every day. Um, so when that selection happens, they try to get together the young, the educated young men. This time they're targeting educated young men. They say, hey, we've got office work. We want you all to work as translators and, and you know, administrative assistants, things like that. And, uh, and same thing, he gets this just gut feeling that says it's not right. They took all the young men who showed up for that selection, killed them all off because they knew that if they killed the young leaders, it was very hard for any type of resistance to happen. If you kill off the old leaders, it, it harms the community, but younger, intelligent people will, will rise up into, into, you know, into the ranks. And they did over time, of course, but it really hurt, you know, of course, hurt the community you yeah. know, as, as it was happening. So this is all in... 1941 going into 1942 so they start to kind of get used to life in the ghetto they're moving a lot of jews from outside of kovno to kovno um so kovno's original pre-war population was like probably 40,000 jews or so um if you include the suburbs and stuff like that um like i said that first selection they had almost 20,000 people already in the ghetto at that point within the first you know month or so that the ghetto was there yeah um they wiped out half it within that first month wow um they're sending people from all over over lithuania to vilna vilnas and kovno or Kaunas. um and those those two places basically become the two main areas in lithuania where they're sending the the jews to for ghettos now there's a bunch of other sites throughout kovno uh, throughout lithuania uh in forests and and in uh, pottery and a few other places where they had mass killings where they they gathered jews together just to kill them as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, but the, the whole purpose of the ghettos originally was to try and get some form of labor out of the Jewish population as they're, they're killing them off. Yeah. So for another couple of years, they're, they're there in the ghetto and in, so they're there until late 43 or that's 44? exactly what I was about to say. I was trying to remember if it was late 43, or early 44, but they're, they're there until then. And, and there starts being talk of liquidation of the ghetto. Um, Actually, I'll backtrack one other thing. There was a liquidation um, about three or four months before then. And my, as I was mentioning before about the documents in Eastern Europe, my entire great-grandmother's family was in a selection. Oh, I should have brought one of my cards in. We have the photo from from a man who was taking photos. Uh, Basically, he had built his own camera, had gotten a hold of his own equipment. He's he's a, a, a hero. 
uh, who documented a lot of what went on in Kovno, buried the film and all because he didn't know if he'd survive the war or not. Survived mm. the war, came back and got the film. And he took some pictures of my grandfather and great-grandmother when they were in line to be deported with her family. Wow. Everybody else in that line did not survive the war. That's insane. Except for my grandfather and great-grandmother. The, fa- the fact that you're sitting here. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a miracle on top of miracle on top of miracle. I mean, that's that's the crazy part of, yeah. And, and that's, like you said, the fact that I'm even sitting here, that, that my mom, uncle, and aunt would have even been born. Yeah. And then even to my generation is, it's it, once again, it's, it, it creates a different level of faith when, you know, you, you see things working that way. Yeah. Um, and so, so, but they were in line to be deported. And honestly, she wanted, my great-grandmother wanted to go with her family because that was her mother, her father, uh, her, her whole family. And my grandfather, of course, this time he's seven years old. He starts tugging at her and says, Mom, let's, let's go home. I want to see, see my dad. You know, I want to see Abba. And she says, well, you know, Abba will come join us, but, you know, we're staying with, with the family, da-da-da. A Jewish police officer who didn't know what was going to go on with the selection but knew these people were being deported to Riga, Latvia. He knew where they were going, didn't know what was going to happen there. He comes and he's, he's a very good friend of my great-grandfather's and he says, Edna, if you don't go home, Izzy's not going to know what to do with himself when he gets home. He's going to lose it. If, if you and Jay are gone, that man's going to lose the will to live. And she's kind of like, I don't know, I don't know. And my grandfather just kept begging her, please leave, please leave, please leave. And then finally she decided to leave and thank God that she did because they would almost every person that selection died uh, when they got to Rigalava and were shot and killed. Saved I mean, her, so saved her life, saved yeah. her son's life, and yeah. and probably saved her husband's life. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, they had been through so much at that point. He would have lost his daughter, now his son, his wife, and of course, so many people, millions of people, are losing all these all these family members around them, and going through these horrors. Um, and of course, by the end of it all, you go through all of that, and you kind of become numb to it. But he, yeah, I think I think that definitely would have would have been. He, he likely wouldn't have survived after that I, I don't because that gave him the fire to just and that's why the book on the family story is called Izzy's Fire is because that's what my great grandfather used to used to say about my great grandma was that she was his fire that she you know was his motivation to do everything so like I said so they go through that selection now once again they didn't know they knew that people were being deported but they didn't know what had happened now they knew after the war that more than likely they had died they you know they, they had a good feeling about that but like i said it it wasn't until the the early 2000s that my grandfather finally gets confirmation that that's what actually happened to his to his grandparents to his aunts and uncles and and to his family so it's it's so, just so his entire family extended family was wiped oh out oh yeah so that's another thing that i didn't mention yes yeah, so they had a family that was probably 100 to 150 strong extended family uncles aunts cousins all of that and only about 10 people from the whole family survived by the by the end of the war I, I and by some and by some counts that's actually better than some than some families odds of survival my grandfather was one of 72 children who survived from kovno for yeah. after the war doesn't make any sense yeah me. i mean it's just and so once again you're talking like you said you, you know you and i both i'm looking you know you look at it and you put these events together and it just it's mind-boggling to think of the amount of miracles that just took place for for him to survive for my great-grandparents to survive so here comes one of the the, the craziest parts toward towards the end of, of the story of survival this gets crazier it's well they've survived all those brushes with death and they finally have to develop a plan to escape 
So they get word that there is starting to be actions against children or the kinder actions. So it starts in the Warsaw Ghetto and many of the ghettos in Poland. So the Nazis then have a full plan that they're going to start killing all the kids. Basically, if you were caught hiding a kid or if they saw a kid, they would grab them up, take them off to be executed. Were they just trying to wipe out a generation? They wanted to wipe out the generation. What they realized as the war was going on was they said, well, even if we don't complete the, the... the end goal of killing all of the Jews, if they kill off the next generation, boom. Yeah. You know, yeah, you, yeah. You, you cut off the next generation, you're cutting off the future of the Jewish people. And that was a, a full that was a full focus of the Nazis. And once again, it's one of those things that many people don't realize that level of horror, that there was an intent to kill. And, and once again, throwing it back to Russia and Ukraine right now. The Russians have taken Ukrainian children. They've sent them to Russia. They've done it. And, and people, you know... I, it's hard to, to comprehend some of these things, but people let it go because there's like this idea of, you know, if if uh, if if the Ukrainians give up some land and they get a peace deal, then okay, great, everybody's happy again. But that's when people start to think that way where they're willing to, to, to try and kill children with the intent to kill off of people, mind wash them, convert them, whatever it might be. Yeah. That's monsters. That's evil. I mean, there's no, there's, there's no there's way no around qu- it. There's no question about that. Um so they determine that they have to escape because they know that the chances every day are going down that my grandfather will survive. That even if whatever they do, that all it takes is for him to get found by a Nazi, by a, by a Lithuanian, um, that, and that he's going to be put to death. So my great-grandmother's uncle worked out in the countryside, and he had a place out about 60, 70 kilometers outside of Kovno. And he had been hiding. He never came into the ghetto. He had been hiding out with members of his community who had been hiding him since the, since the Nazis had invaded. And they had slowly smuggled Jews out of the ghetto there. And there was a partisan or Jewish you know, resistance along with Lithuanian re- resistance, Russian resistance, uh, that were fighting back against the Nazis when and where they could, you know, bombing you know, cars here and there. Um, my uh, great-grandfather's cousin... Um, Libela Gilman. Um, oh, really? He, yeah. He, say, say it, because my last name is Gilman. Say that again? Yeah, Libela Gilman. And yeah, so we, there was a, a, a part of our family, uh, last name was also Gilman. I oh, thought wow. it was ironic when, yeah. I hadn't, yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't mentioned that to you yet, but I thought it was ironic that that was part of um, one of the branches of the family wow. prior to the Holocaust. Yeah, that's so wild. The, and that's another thing. The, the last name was Ip before they came to the U.S. They changed it to Ipsen mm. because it was... I've heard two different stories. One was to Americanize it. The other one was that, that they were told it was too short when it was three letters, so they, they added son to it. Um, I don't know which one, you know, at this point, I don't know which one is the, is the exact story, uh, but I've heard both of those yeah, uh, yeah. over the years. But so Ipsen is the name now. And and ironically enough, a couple other family members from the Ip side of the family, which was my great-grandfather's side of the family, who made their way to the U.S., also made the decision to change the name to Ipsen instead of independently yeah independently wow. same spelling same everything uh my great-grandmother's side of the family was butramovich and none of them survived because of that selection with going to riga latvia so that whole side of the family was was killed off wow but leva he had a couple pistols and a hand grenade that the resistance he had worked with the resistance and he smuggled people out and he helps them to coordinate with getting out of the ghetto so at night, they had a big ghetto and a small ghetto, and the family house was right next to the fencing that ran on both sides of it. They had a walking bridge that split one of the main streets in Kovno to get from the big ghetto to the small ghetto. 
And one night they determined that they were going to escape. They, they didn't decide that night. They had planned a night and they had a farmer waiting about maybe half a mile to a mile away. And they had to cut the barbed wire. My great-grandfather, sorry, my grandfather went first. And so as the guard would pass on the street, you'd hear his feet, you know, his footsteps. And when it got to the quietest point, they knew it was the farthest away. And so he went in complete darkness by crawling on hands and feet, found their way to a spot. And they had designated meeting spot. I don't know the exact distance, but somewhere within that half a mile to a mile. They had a meeting spot where my grandfather went first. Then after the next pass, my great-grandmother went. Then after the third pass, my great-grandfather went. Mm. The cousin uh, tied back the barbed wire, said the Nazis wouldn't know that they had escaped, and they made their way down that main road to this farmer. My great-grandfather and grandfather hid under the hay because they would have been more suspicious as men. My great-grandmother dressed in, like, basically farm clothes, Lithuanian farm clothes, because all the clothes they had were similar to to what Jews wore at the time, Um, and so they didn't want to be noticed. And so she wore a head scarf and everything. And now she didn't speak as well as my great grandfather did. So they were worried that if anybody came up to talk to her, that it might get get found out. Whereas my great grandfather, he spoke, you know, all these languages fluently. He yeah. could he could blend in with with you know with the Russians with the Nazis if he wanted to. And and a couple times got complimented on his German uh, from some of the Nazis. So they go away uh, 50, 60 kilometers, and they make their way to a to a farmer who lets them hide in a barn. After the first few nights or so, the farmer's wife says, look, I, I know that we said that we'd help these people. I'm glad that we helped them, but we can't have them stay here anymore. They, they're putting us at risk. If we get caught, we're all put to death. Another farmer volunteers to take them in. This farmer literally had a dirt floor. So like when I was raised, my grandfather was like, it doesn't matter what you have. Of course, I grew up here in America, so did my mom's generation. So we grew up with a lot of prosperity compared to what he grew up with and, and even what Eastern Europe now you know now has today. And so he used to remind us all the time, a family with a dirt floor with that the father, mother, and the son all shared a bed is who saved their lives. Mm. That that, you know, no matter what, no matter what you do in life, no matter where you get, you treat everybody with the most respect possible. And that, you know, that no matter what you ever make in this life with money or anything like that, that's insignificant, that good people are good people, bad people, you know. Yep. And, uh, but Lily had a dirt floor and risked their own lives with no gain. They weren't being paid anything by the family, weren't promised anything to save them. So they rescued the three of them first. So they hide in this back room. The Nazis are coming around doing their inspections and stuff like that. And the farmer's like, look, it's too tight. We just, you know, we can't keep everybody in here. We got to figure something out. My great-grandfather knows that they have what's called potato holes and potato holes are a hole in the ground so that the permafrost that they have you know pretty much year round they have frost on the ground in that area of lithuania and so they dig these holes like four to six feet in the ground to put their potatoes in so that they stay fresh so he thinks man that'd be a great place to hide he wasn't an engineer he goes to dig underground one night and it falls in on him as Mm. he's trying to put it up because he doesn't put things up around him their german shepherd sits there and barks and barks and barks until the son who happened to be out that night comes home, realizes that this hand sticking out of the ground, realizes my great-grandfather's, digs and digs and uncovers his face so he can breathe, goes and gets his parents, and they dig him out. <laughs> I mean, like, that, that's the types of stories that, I mean, just, you know, it's it's one miracle after the next. Yeah. I mean, but so, so they survive that. They hide in that potato hole for six months so that my grandfather, great-grandfather does build it, they all are hiding in this place, complete darkness. My grandfather came out of there, I think, three times in six months. 
They had a bucket that they used for the bathroom. If if they, the Nazis were coming around, they had two drop hatches that had uh, potatoes like glued on top of them. They dropped those down. So if the Nazis looked down the potato hole, they uh, thought that, that it was just right at the potato hole. They couldn't get out unless the farmer came and lifted those up. So there was a couple times that happens for about a day or two. There was so little air in there that when those were closed that you couldn't light a match because wow. it would go out because of the amount of air. You need oxygen to light the match. You need oxygen to live. And they're sitting here relying on this farmer because if the farmer gets captured, the family gets captured, they're dead. They're sitting down here waiting on this farmer to come and open this thing up. Or if he forgets or just whatever happens, if they were down there for more than three days, they're, they're done. Up, they're, they're done. They die. And, but that's the level of faith they had in this farmer. They all three survived. They also had 10 others who were smuggled over the next couple months there with them who stayed with them for about four of the months out of the six months. Was that, they, was that farmer Jewish? That farmer was not Jewish. No, yeah. no, they were Catholic. They were Catholic. So actually, just, just good people. Yeah, I, actually, all the people uh, that were in Poland, Lithuania, that say because they were Jewish, they would have been killed off by the Nazis. Yeah. All of the people that saved Jews from Lithuania, from Poland uh, at that time were, were non Jewish. 95, 97% of them were probably Catholic. Yeah. You know? Wow. And that's part of where a lot of people don't realize that's where Pope John Paul II's big connection was with a lot of the Jewish community and Jews in general yeah. was that he had a friend when he was younger who was Jewish. And I can't remember if the friend survived the Holocaust or not, but it's very impactful. I and mean, that's why he pushed a lot for, for, you know, really a lot of, you know, yeah. reconciliation with the Jewish community and things like that. Uh, Cause he, you know, and he, his family had gone, gone through, you know, World War II and seen a lot of it too. So yeah. um, they fortunately, after hiding in that potato hole for six months, being in hiding for nine months, surviving the ghetto, surviving the selections, all of that, they're rescued by, liberated by the Soviets. So they hear this massive rumbling one day and they have no idea what it is. And it's going by and going by and all of a sudden the farmer comes over running and he's yelling to them. We're free. We're free. The Red Army is here. It's come to save us. We've been liberated. And they come out, and the tanks are just rolling by them through this field. Their first bath in, I don't know, year, two years maybe? I mean, they probably wash off with a rag here there a couple times. Their first bath is in a sauna that the farmers had on the farm. Like a natural uh, hot spring? Kind no, of? they would take the water and put it on the stone. Like that, but they just didn't use yeah. it. They didn't care about having a bath yeah. while they were hiding. <clears throat> so it wasn't a priority. And um, so their first bath that they have in, in the longest time is is going into the sauna and being able to actually wash up, majorly wash up, and just sit there and enjoy it for the first time in it's five probably, years. Probably first time in yeah five years they felt some semblance of normalcy. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, I'm, we're guys, I can only imagine how, you know, yeah. how much better it felt for the, for the women to be able to, you know, to, yeah. you know, I mean, it just, so, but that, and, and so of course that's not the end of the story. They then flee from the Soviet union after one month, my great grandfather, they go back home. They, they, the, so they go to go back home. Yeah. Actually that's, they, they burned the Kovno ghetto to the ground when they left. The Nazis did. They go to go back to the ghetto there's a person, actually a woman, picking through the ashes, trying to find gold and things from the Jewish people. And my great-grandfather chases off in mad hysteria. My grandfather's with my great-grandfather when this happens. So he goes back and he's seeing, you know, he had seen people dying of starvation. Um, I didn't tell a story about a, a 19-year-old guy named Mac who had been hung early on in the, uh, in the ghetto. Um, my grandfather witnessed that hanging when he was six years old. Yeah. Um, comes back to the ghetto and 
they go to the major hiding place that they knew if anybody had survived from the family was going to be at, which was a well that, that people would hide at the bottom of sometimes. And at the well, there was my um, great-grandfather's sister's ration card was halfway burnt at the top of the well, and there was a body burnt beyond recognition at the bottom of the well. Mm. So they believed that that was, was her. She was never heard of after the war. Yeah. She wasn't part of that selection that went to Riga. Um, so we don't know for certain, but that's that's what, what's believed to have happened. Um, so many Jews were killed then. Another thing that, that a lot of people don't realize is that thousands of Jews were killed going back to their homes after the Holocaust, after after the Nazis had, when these Jews were going back to their homes, many people had taken taken over their homes, taken over their possessions, uh, chased them off or killed them. Now, fortunately for my family, that, that didn't happen. Um, but that happened to thousands of people across Poland and Lithuania. And, and, and then a lot of Jews then were placed in the DP camps where they stay for, you know, two, three years before finally being allowed to emigrate and leave and, you know, start their lives yeah. again. Um so yeah, ironically, when my grandfather went back in 2003, my grandfather did not step foot in Europe again until he went to visit Lithuania and Kovno, and he almost didn't want to go back then. Um, but he wanted to be able to get firsthand documentation for the museum, mm. um, wanted to be able to, to get anything related to the family story, anything about the Holocaust, because of course by that point the museum was his, his passion. Um, and so he took a trip with my uncle, to go there and show show everything that happens they've they videotaped a lot of it they go into the old house they come up to the house and they ask this woman who was there they said can we come in and, and see the house and the lady and the lady goes did you come here to take my home and my grandfather goes no but i'd like to step foot into my family's home and tell my son about our stories here and she kind of hemmed in the hall and he said, look, I'm not here for anything. I don't want anything from you. I don't know how long you've even been here. Da, da, da. Walks in, some of the furniture is similar, and there's a runner laying right in the middle of the floor. And he goes, underneath that runner is a door to the potato cellar. And the lady just went wide-eyed, couldn't believe it. And sure enough, pulls it back. There's the door to the, to the potato and this is 20 cellar. years ago. And this, is, this was 20 years ago. My grandfather at this point is 68 years old. Hadn't been home since he was five years old, six wow. years old. And remembered that. Remembered everything about the house. Many of the, many, much of the house still looked very similar, sadly, because of how the, the Soviet Union treated a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, it was a very poor region, um, really, until the fall of the Soviet Union and a lot of those places got liberation and and reintroduced to capitalism and, and, and those freedoms. 40, those 44 years later for that yeah. process to begin. Yeah. Uh, so, how did your family make it to the States? So originally they're living there with the Soviet Union and, uh, and my great grandfather's running, um, I think it was a factory, but he paid an extra ration to his people for hitting goals and metrics. So he basically, you know, incentivized. He's, he's a capitalist. He, he said, Hey, <laughs> these other guys don't get it. I'm going to, uh, to, you know, give you all a bit of an incentive. So one month he gets the uh, Soviet flag is considered a hero of the nation, best, you know, best production out of, you know, their whole region, whatever it was. And then the, so the Soviets find out what had happened. And they said, well, wait a second, we didn't authorize you to use it that way. And he's like, right, but we had double the production of everybody else. So you're welcome. You know, yeah, obviously it's working. So yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, glad that you appreciate it so much. They declare him an enemy of the state. Just, just comes lunacy. Home, yeah. lunacy. He comes home on a bicycle 
riding a bicycle, grabs my great grandmother and grandfather. And he's late thirties at this and point. He's, yeah, this, uh, yeah, yeah, late thirties, mid to late thirties. Comes home riding a bicycle and says, "We need to go." Literally, just like with the Holocaust, that what little bit they had at this point, done, gone. They left. They just start heading west. They don't even know exactly where they're going. How, they how did they travel? They hitchhike. Yeah, wow. They literally caught, you know, this person, that person, whatever. Uh, they had to be very careful. They end up in East Berlin. And a Nazi answers his door and shows them to Checkpoint Charlie to cross over to the western side. Comes out in his Nazi uniform. Wow. They didn't tell me that they were Jewish refugees. They just told him they were refugees. Yeah, yeah. Not to say what he may or may not have done. But like I said, my great-grandfather spoke really good German. So and, they, they um, cross through Checkpoint Charlie. They tra- cross through Checkpoint Charlie. They get to Berlin. Then they end up in Munich. Um, and there's so many other stories. My great-grandfather ends up at the Nuremberg Trials for two days. He shares a bed with David Ben-Gurion at one point. Mm. Um, knew David Ben-Gurion fairly well, as well as many of the, the founding fathers of Israel. Um, they didn't want, he didn't want to come to the U.S. He, was a, he, was a, he loved the U.S., loved, loved everything about capitalism, about democracy. And he was like, I want to go to Israel. He's like, but if I can't go to Israel, I'd like to go to the U.S. Well, they somewhat with an appointment with a guy who's normally a complete hard ass. And they, I, I need to step back a second. He was making documents for people to go to Israel and immigrate. And they said, well, we can send Edna and Jay, but we can't send you till a few months. We need, we need your skill set, basically. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, okay, deal. Send them. I'll stay and help out. And my great-grandmother looks at him and goes, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> the Nazis didn't break us up. The Soviets didn't break us up. She was like, no, we're not, we're not separating now right. to, go, to go to Israel. And, of course, that was his passion. He really wanted to go. Um, and fortunately, they do end up here in the U.S. The family's had a great life here in the U.S. But my great-grandmother um, had a sister who had left shortly before the Holocaust. Mm. And... She had married into the Brown family that owns Brown Distributing. Oh wow! Yeah, and so um, a what Brown, a, what a small world. A Brown, and well, that's how they end up in Richmond. Yeah, which is funny. The first time I go to New York City, no disrespect to anybody in New York City, but first time I go and visit there, and, and many other big cities I've been to, I looked at my grandfather. I said, "Thank you for picking Richmond, Virginia. It's the <laughs> it's the best big little city. Yeah, I love this city. That's why, of course, I moved back after college. But I." It's the best big little city in America. It's got, and I love, of course, like I told you, I I live out, you know, Aylet, so, you know, in the countryside, but, you know, either way. So I told him, I said, thank you for, uh, for, you know, of course it wasn't his choice. I mean, he was, he was a kid at the time, but you know, I'm like, I'm so glad that that that's where we ended up. But so, yeah, so they, they go to the interview and my great grandfather's like, well, good, this guy's going to shoot us down. He's never going to let us go to the U.S. The guy apparently didn't like, I don't know if he didn't like Jewish people, didn't like them, whatever it was. My great-grandfather is waiting for this guy to shoot it down. He takes out a piece of green cloth. He knows that, that they're related to the Browns and that they own a Pepsi-Cola plant. And he looks at my grandfather and he goes, what color is this? And he tells him green. He goes, well, okay, at least if, if he knows that's green, y'all know that's green. The three of y'all can clean bottles. So at least you'll have a job when you make it to the States. Wow. So that's how they ended up coming. That's originally what they did. They came here. And uh, they went through New York. So your great-grandmother's sister left Lithuania. Left Lithuania in the early 30s. And ended up? And ended up here. Wow. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's hard to fathom. Yeah, and like I said, and that's the whole reason why they playing down in Richmond. They could have been anywhere else. It could have been. It could have. And, and you know, a lot of a lot of people don't realize after the Holocaust, a lot of Jews went to South America, went to you know, went to Brazil, went to Argentina. Um, you know, could have been anywhere. Yeah. You know, but like I said, they they really did want Israel first, and then if not Israel, America is where they wanted to go. Um, but it's just. And, and in there, there's all types of other stories still. I mean, that's the short version. I, I, I've i had times where I've talked to people about it for, you know, three to four hours about yeah. some of the family stories because there's just, you know. It's, and your great-grandfather, upon getting here, decided to stay here. Your your grandfather stayed here. Yeah, yeah and so that's the other thing. So when my great-grandparents get here, they didn't even end up working at the Pepsi plant. When they get here, my great-grandfather didn't like handouts. And so he was like, not that it would have been a handout. I mean, he still would have been working and it wouldn't have been easy work. But he said, I'm going to go get a job. So he goes to a service station at the time. Carrie, doesn't Carrie speak, Auto Service. Doesn't speak, doesn't speak English. And I don't remember how it all worked out. Um, but he goes and becomes a janitor at Carrie Service Station. He gets a great relationship with the owner. He's slowly learning English. My grandfather's teaching them half the English as he's learning it in the schools. Yeah. They're talking with other people. And I'm sure that my great-grandfather picked up on it quicker than you know than, than maybe others. But you know, and, and then the Jewish community, he could speak to everybody in, in Yiddish and in Hebrew. Um, no, I was going to say the owner might have been the owner of the gas station might have been somebody who spoke another language too. But I don't think that's the case. I think I think they just worked out. But so he worked as a janitor until he saved up enough, and the man wanted to sell his business. And my great grandfather bought that gas station from him. That was their first business. Wow. Yeah. And yes, then they started an auto parts store, American Auto Parts Company, which was here in Richmond for fifty years or so. Um, my grandfather started his own branch of American auto parts down in Hopewell. Um, they actually owned a small airport at one point too, <laughs> down in, uh, down at bird, um, bird field, bird, uh, it was bird field back then. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So yeah, then he had, he, he had like six to eight planes that he ran out of, out at bird field. And wow. when the uh, oil embargo happened on gas prices shot through the roof for planes, he said, this is a good time to get out. He said, he didn't know what, what was going to happen. And it was too expensive of a, you know, he was doing it as a, as a thing to break, even that's a hobby. He flew planes. So he was, I get to fly planes, and if I can break even, great. Yeah. Once it got to where the costs were, were piling up, he's like, well, I can fly other people's planes for all of this. And, you know, they sold a few planes that they had and got out of it. But my mom has stories of growing up there at Bird Field, riding dirt bikes and, you know, being out there on the <laughs> on. Her. But it's like I said, this is a man who literally, you know, and uh, literally owns a business, joins the, well, at the time, joined the U.S. military right out of high school. He, he knew. He was like, these people came and fought a war and came – to rescue other people and didn't need to. They've welcomed in my family, great community. That was the first thing he wanted to do was serve in the military. So he did. He joined the Army right out of high school. Um, he was active duty for eight years. He actually almost ended up being sent to Korea. Mm. And his commanding officer went and told him that they need to pick somebody other than him because he was already an instructor. And they said, well, no, that's not really how it works. You know, lottery system. Died. And he said, no, I'm telling you, this is one of the youngest instructors we've ever had. We need to keep him here to train people to yeah. go over there. It's just very, you know, it's very important. So he, he ends up, you know, staying stateside instead of being, you know, sent to Korea. Well, he, he because he was so good at instructing, he yes. was having a multiple. Yeah, better effect. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, he almost gets sent to Germany while he's in the military. And that about kills my great granddad. My great granddad is like, I can't believe they're going to send you back there. You can't go. They'll kill you. And my granddad goes, that's not exactly how it works. You know, like I signed... 
sign my paperwork. If I don't go where they tell me, that's called AWOL, and you yeah. know, they'll, they'll arrest me. Because this is the and, uh, 50s? That would have been, yes, the um, late 50s. Let's see, he would have been... You know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. That it would have been the late 50s or early 60s yeah, yeah. at that point. Um, I don't know if that was before he had married my grandmother or not. But he ends up going to Israel last minute. Mm. Plans gets changed. That's the first time that he ends up going to Israel is because of that trip. And instead of going to Germany, where they were scared to death, then he gets to go to Israel. And my great-grandfather, of course, was so excited for him. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all of that. Um, so, yeah. And then when he meets... So, my grandmother, she's just as amazing, you know of a woman her family left her father left Kovno in the early 30s also went to Canada my grandfather ends up up in Canada because he's got you know there was a distant cousin who was up in Canada he goes up there for a um, like a pantyhose business that they're trying to start did, did they know each other as children they didn't know him and my grandmother yeah no not at all okay that's actually one of the other funny things his, her father did not like her dating guys like just adamant about you know yeah, when the time's right, you know, we'll right. set somebody up for you, you know, whatever type of thing. So she um, worked at like the local Jewish community center and like taught, um, God, what was she teaching at the time? She did like, uh, she did dancing. Okay. She was doing dancing and did like the tango and different stuff. And my grandfather liked to dance. So he had the cousin who, um, who told him, you know, um, he's trying to meet girls and stuff like that. And he says, you know, points to my grandmother and goes, who's that? And he says, oh, that's uh, that's Bernard's daughter. You're, you got no chance there. Yeah, he won't let anybody, yeah, yeah, he won't let anybody near her. And you're, you're not even from here. So good luck. You know, and, and he goes, he goes, no, he's like, I think I'm going to marry that girl. And he's like, whatever, you're crazy. They dated for all of two months. My grandmother broke broke up with the boyfriend that she had at the time. Of course, I use that term loosely. It's very, it was very different back then yeah, than yeah, it is yeah. today, of course. Um, my grandfather goes to get his business license, and the Canadian says, well, you Jews are all the same. You can't make it in America, so you come up here. And he looks at him. He goes, I drove here in my own car. I'm starting a business. He was like, I'm, a, I'm an officer in the United States Army, and I'm coming here to, to put my, to put my uh, money and time into your community. And the guy's like, so what? And he goes, well, if that's how you're going to be, I'm – going back to the States and pretty much gave him a big middle finger and was like, you know, have a good day. Yeah. So he leaves my, he goes to my grandmother who took him there to help the community, you know, takes him there to help out. Cause he doesn't know where this stuff's at. Takes him there to help out. That was one of their, their third or fourth dates was going to try and get him a business license. And, uh, and he says, look, I don't know what all is going to go on. He was like, but I'm heading back to the States. He was like, I've got, you know, more opportunity there than I do here. I really don't like what just happened. I want you to come with me. I promise if you do, I'll marry you. Four, four days. No, four dates. Yeah. Two months or so. But okay. four dates, yeah, yeah. two months. Yep. Um, and he says, if you come back to America, I'll marry you. You'll have a good life. I can promise you that. He said, if not, good luck. She had never left home before. Had lived with her family and stuff. Now, she did have some issues mom dad different things like that um but had lived with her dad and she went home and told her dad she said i'm i'm getting married i'm leaving this is, i love this man and i'm leaving and he flipped out he even though he was from kovno which he loved that about my grandfather he thought that my grandfather because of the holocaust was maybe going to have a lot of mental and emotional issues sure. was very very unsure about that match for his daughter 
for the rest of her life. Didn't really know him that well. When my great-grandfather comes to town, however that all happened, I don't know if it was at the wedding because they got married somewhere up in the Northeast. I think it was in Boston or somewhere. But they got they had um, another distant aunt of my, my grandmother's uh, had a place up there. And somehow when he, her dad, my grandmother's dad, met my grandfather's dad, they started speaking Yiddish to each other. They started talking about Kovno. And everything was fine. Then he fell in love with my grandfather. So yeah. it's just crazy. It's wild. Story. And wild. without any of that, I wouldn't be here before you today. <laughs> or, or your mom or your, <laughs> yeah. your, your aunts or uncles. Um, assuming you, you have aunts and uncles. And I do, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you, so from Kovno, Lithuania for your family, you're now in Aylid. Yeah. Yeah. And I grew up in Tappahannock. Yeah. That's, that's just, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other part, of course, is most, but you know, we were the only Jewish family out there when I was younger. Um, and, uh, and of course that, that gave me a different view on life too, because so many people that I met had never met Jews or, you know, know, didn't really know anything about the Jewish community. And that's where my outlook on teaching about Judaism as a religion, Jewish history, the Holocaust, um, anti-Semitism, a lot of those things blends together is because I didn't deal with high level anti-Semitism luckily. Yeah. Most people that I dealt with who had any types of opinions towards Jews that were negative, it was normally a certain level of ignorance. But the community has been very welcoming. Of course, I moved back there because I love it. My parents live live out in Aylet, yeah. And I uh, and you know my all my fam- a lot of my family's out there. So I mean, it's like you said, from Covina, Lithuania, to Richmond, Virginia, it's bizarre. Yeah, completely. And what an amazing story. So Izzy's Fire, that book, yes, covers. Uh, a lot of what we just talked about. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I imagine a you lot more. You can get that on Amazon. You can get it. Yeah, you can get it. Did it? Wherever. Is did your great grandfather write it? No. So uh, so actually, Nancy Wright Beasley wrote it um, towards the end of my grandfather's life. My grandfather had gotten into. Um, he's also an amateur photographer and videographer. He says professional. I say amateur, but <laughs> he's got a lot that's out there. So maybe as a professional, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, but he did a very good job with it. And so uh, in the 90s, uh, in the late 80s, there started to become a big push to record the stories of, uh, of Holocaust survivors. Yeah, Mark, Mark was a big part of that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, so before that had really kicked into full gear, my grandfather, when my great-grandfather retired, he said, I want you to still come in every day to, the, to uh, American Auto Parts. He said, I want you to sit in your office and just list off whatever you can remember. Childhood, anything about the family, mm. the Holocaust, whatever. So he would come in for a few hours at a time, and he was, I think majority of the of the transcript was from when he was 85 to 87. He died when he was 88, so I don't know exactly. I know he was somewhere in his in his mid to late 80s. And, but his uh, and mind so, was good. He, his mind was still very good, yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, like anybody else, sometimes, you know, he'd say stuff and get to talking, and then uh, they actually have, have a, uh, an, a interview with him that's available through the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum from 1995, which is all transcribed from a verbal, you know, one and like, you know, so, you know, he'll get off on a tangent. Of course, obviously I'm 31 and I'm still getting off on tangents right, while yeah, talking yeah. about, I, I do about these the stories. Yeah. Um, and, um, so yeah, so, um, so he starts recording all of that. And so between that and then Nancy talking with, um, uh, my great grandmother about all the experiences, and the stories, and kind of going back through what my great grandfather said, great grandmother says doing independent research, what my grandfather remembered, uh, that's how she put together. Uh, the book, but so it's 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 about 200 pages or so, and covers um, the majority of the family story, focusing on that time, you know, during the Holocaust. It the Holocaust. Sounds like it could have been five or six hundred pages. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, it. 
I think she picked a good size though, because most people, if it's over two hundred ish pages, tend yeah, to be like, I don't, I don't know if that's the one I'm gonna read. The, the attention span is a funny thing for people. Uh, how can people help the uh, Virginia Holocaust Museum? So I think both with the Virginia Holocaust Museum and with Holocaust education in general, it's really just about reaching out. Um, people like Mark, of course, have been an amazing resource for for the Jewish community around the world, but especially here in Richmond with all the impact that he's had. Um, really just trying to find people who are who are educated about the topic to come and speak, uh, you know, to a school, to a church, to, you know, I've got a Roritan club um, that I'm going and speaking at later on. I've spoken to a Rotary club, you know, and, and um, but schools to me is the number one thing, you know, and, and, and that hits its, you know, coordinating it typically i tell people you know librarians teachers they're, they're kind of your, your best people because uh, they can work it into the curriculum and typically right. find that time um and then just doing independent research but it, it's fine books don't don't just trust what's online just yeah. because there's so much mixed information out there um but there's a good plethora of information out there in the case of the museum they can reach out they've got a couple of contact emails for people they can reach out to about different volunteer opportunities people can get involved uh, by being tour guides, they can get involved by being the reception. Um, there's a lot of different opportunities. Do you still give tours? So I don't. Um, I don't give tours at the Virginia Holocaust Museum at this point right now. They've changed some things from back when I was giving tours, and I haven't really done a, a good refresher um, at the museum. But So I typically go to schools, um, but I, I've, I'm looking at getting back involved with the museum. It's just been uh, it's been a process. Yeah. The uh, the fact that your family survived Lithuanian Catholics trying to do harm to them, and then the Nazis, and then the Soviets, and you end up in Tappahannock slash Richmond Metro is uh, I, it's got to be top three most unbelievable stories I've ever heard. It's it's top two. I, I'll, I'll tell you another story some other time that is equally as unbelievable from a different part of the world at a different time. But uh, I really appreciate you coming. I, we're going to get together again. I'm shocked that you haven't. I know you're only 31, uh, so you haven't lived a full life, but your family has a unbelievable story. You should have been on a podcast by now, especially given how much knowledge you have on, on this, the topic of your family and their experiences. Well, I, I just I appreciate the compliments. I mean, I've I've put a lot of time into the research, and it's something that brings a lot of pride to myself. I'm very fortunate that my my grandfather put in so much time and work to really preserve our family history, and then to pass it on to me and other family members. So yeah, no, I just I appreciate the opportunity. I wish your uh, your uh, more of your family had survived because they, they would have this effect that the message and the information and the facts would be uh, even bro- more broadly understood. Um, but you're doing your part for sure. Very cool. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.